I have been the alter ego of Peter Hugar for 30 years. Yeah. Which means I've done a lot of talking and a lot of thinking about it. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. In 1987, at the height of the AIDS crisis, Peter Hujar, at the age of 53, passed away. His work, which was largely unknown at the time, except to friends and a small cult following, is now considered to be one of the richest bodies of work amongst 20th century photography. After a long debate over who he was going to give his archive to, Hujar decided on his close friend, Stephen Koch. The decision was controversial amongst friends of Hujar's, and in a famous exchange, Koch recounts Hujar telling him, You're no good, but you're the best I've got. Today I sit down for a special conversation with Koch to talk about his career as a celebrated author, teacher, and executor of the Peter Hujar estate, which he's managed for almost 35 years. You're an artist yourself. You're a celebrated writer. You've taught for years at the most prestigious schools. You've had your own artistic career. I'm curious about when you inherited this thing, then this responsibility. Was there any conflict in promoting his work, making his work known and doing the same for your own? I thought about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, now it's true. Peter is much better known than I am. (laughs) Much. Mm -hmm. But I helped make that happen. Right. No, I didn't feel it was a conflict Mm. because I taught a lot. And I'd get all gussied up in my blazer and slacks and rep tie or whatever the fuck it was and <laughs> and go off to Princeton and be perfectly presentable from their point of view. It all went just hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. I knew I'd spent half my life doing that sort of thing. So why couldn't I do something else that would be half my life? How did you guys meet in the first place? Was it, it was through Susan Sontag? I was in my 20s, and I was in graduate school and loathed every minute. So instead of doing all the graduate school stuff, I started writing essays. I went to Columbia Bookstore and saw in the window the two sort of fanciest smart books that were just out, which was V by Thomas Pynchon, which locates it exactly, and a benefactor by somebody named Susan Sontag. I wrote a piece about it, and to my amazement, it was accepted and published. And then someone said, you should send this to Susan Sontag. And I did, thinking, so long, nice. And then in the mailbox, there was this note from Susan Sontag saying, thank you for your piece. I hadn't seen it before. It is one of the most interesting things that's been said about my work. We should meet. I met her. Very quickly, I was taken up by her as a kind of protege. Hmm. I became very closely associated with her, which I did for, was for the rest of her life. Hmm. I started publishing like mad. I dropped out of graduate school. I thought, good God. And she knew a lot of people, among them Peter Ujar and Paul Tech. And one day I was there, as I very often was, in her apartment. Uh, she said, don't go yet. Somebody I know is coming by who might be interested in it. And I said, okay. In walks Peter. He had spent the day in the studio where he worked. He was photographing Jane Mansfield. And he described the scene of 
what was like to photograph Jan, Jane Mansfield and how she acted and how she related to her own body and how her mother and father and husband came to watch. And it was like a great novelist was talking. It was fascinating. I still remember exactly everything that he said. And I thought, this guy is really interesting. Susan developed breast cancer in 1972. And her chances of living through it were small. And I was there a lot. And her son and I, and maybe one or two other people who were close to her, I don't remember who, certainly David and me, took her to Sloan Kettering for the first exploratory operation. She was going to have it the morning after we brought her in. We brought her in. She had a nice room. Everything was there. And suddenly she said, oh, I forgot something. And she said, bring me some paper. I promised Peter Huger I'd write an introduction to his book. At which point she wrote in about 30 minutes while I sat there paging through a magazine and everyone else was gone the introduction to Portraits of Life and Death. Hmm. So I took it. What appears in the book is exactly what she wrote. And it suddenly meant that we were no longer just acquaintances. Right. And I'd see him on the street, and I'd say, come over for dinner because I'd like to cook. And he did. And it got to be a habit. We were very close. It's interesting to me that there was never any sexual electricity between us. Hmm. None. I mean, it was, it was like brothers. You would talk to him, and you'd think, he's never told this to anybody. I am privileged. I'm really hearing something for the first time. What's an example of that? How he suffered when he was a child. Hmm. A very personal yeah, anecdote very or personal. story. Yeah. The result was he became my best friend. No question. And I naturally assumed that I was his best friend because we acted like best friends. Hmm. If I went away someplace, I'd invite him to come and see me. He'd come and see me. We'd hang out, etc. And Nan Golden said at the time of his funeral, his grave was lined with people, all of whom thought the same thing, Hmm. which is that they all thought they were his best friend. Right. She thought she was his best friend. That's what I call his capacity for intimacy, for closeness. Here is this isolated guy, because he felt very isolated, even though he knew everybody. And there's an electricity between us that just keeps us going. It's a a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing. I I must say I miss it. Yeah. Um, In a funny way, he was very open and secretive at the same time. Mm-hmm. That is, Nan, for example, felt that she was intimate with Peter. And I am sure that she was. I don't remember ever having had one conversation with Peter about Nan Golden. Mm-hmm. Never once. I don't remember him mentioning her name, which is really kind of weird. He would talk about art in a way that was fascinating. How so? He said, the interesting thing about photography as an art is that it can see things about people that the eye can't see, doesn't see. For example, something about the way people live in their bodies and live in the present 
is legible on a photograph that isn't necessarily legible when you're sitting and talking to them. And he said, a photograph in some ways kind of measures how fully into the moment or how engaged with their own body people are. That almost nobody is in the present all the time. Very few people are. Everyone is checked out in somewhere, distant somewhere, there's something going on. And he said, that's fine. And photography, he thinks, it can often see what that is. And he said, once in a while, you run into somebody who's in the present all the time, every minute. They're very rare. But when you photograph them, that's when you just can't take a bad picture. Hmm. That has stuck with me for a long time as how he thought about portraiture and the way Peter navigated his life. Peter was psychologically very brilliant and subtle. He could not understand why he forbade himself to have any success. He knew he was doing it to himself. And he'd say, I've, I've got to figure it out. I've got to figure it out. I've got to understand it. I remember one night he was at dinner at, at our place. And I said, Peter, if I had another life, I could make you famous and solve your financial problems. I really could. Yeah. I know it. It is ridiculous that a person with your talents and skill and intelligence can't pay his $167 a month rent. Right. It's ridiculous. Then I realized, as I spoke, needless to say, he didn't take me up on it. I thought, are you fucking nuts? Offering, thinking, even in fantasy, that you should be managing Peter's work, he would kill you. Mm. He would kill you. He, everything you did would be wrong, in his opinion. I didn't know he would be as big a success as he is, but I knew he could be a success. There was no reason for him to live in a very limited way he did, unless it served his art. And that is something I think may have been possible. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Stephen Koch that we recorded in New York. To find out more about the show, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. So I want to ask you something. Peter passes away. He gives you the pictures and he gives you the archive. You inherit this thing. You're in your mid-30s at this point. 1987, I was 46. Now, you, you've spoken a lot about how... Every Vincent needs their Theo. You know, an artist makes their work, getting it out there, bringing it to the public's attention, having it collected, having it sold, having it recognized on a, a broader level. It happens because of an effort. Oh, of course. I mean, you, you've really been his Theo. I am his Theo. And I was always the bourgeois brother. What do you mean by that? I wore suits. I had a job at Princeton University. Mm -hmm. I had a, a nothing magnificent, but I had a working middle-class salary. Peter didn't know about that. He didn't know people like that. I was a rarity. I was not from an abused child, from an abusive, impoverished background. I, my father was a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer. An uncle of mine was a lawyer and moderately successful. Uh, lawyers, and I 
in that sense, I was an oddity in his eyes. He liked me, but, you know, he used to have talk about what he called the tribe and the people who inhabit the world as you see it are your tribe. Mm. The people photographed in Portraits in Life and Death are Peter's tribe. His tribe consisted of something that he called those people. He believed, and I must say, I think he often delivered on it, that he could tell who made art possible or made art working in art possible. And he called them those people. I think he thought about me as somebody who was one of those people, even though I was a big bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you were a writer. You were an artist a, yourself. A writer, yeah. I mean, I was a writer. I essentially lived and talked in a way that was part of what his understanding of life should be. Mm. But I wasn't a member of the tribe. I was not somebody who lived on the Lower East Side because I could not afford to live anywhere else. Right. And I was somebody whose talents or skills or whatever made it possible for me to get a job, a a real job at a fancy university. Hmm. Now, Peter knew, I used to say, Peter, you could get a job teaching. You You should get a job teaching. You could get it, I'm sure, in 20 minutes. It would be very easy for you. Go to the new school. They'd hire you, bang, like that. Mm. He said, no, I won't do that. And I have since come to believe he was right. For not doing it. For not doing it. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to look at that work. I, he said, I can already tell you what the student's work will look like, and I don't want to look at it. Mm-hmm. I would urge him sometimes to do teaching, which I did. And which at times, I'm not big on regrets, but they make, I make myself wonder sometimes whether or not the division between us was entirely in my favor and not in his. How do you mean by that? When he stopped working in major studios, in which he had something like a middle-class income, and said... From not in this, in other words, 1971, he said, from now on, it's going to be me and my work, period. And, and how did he earn a living? Totally marginally. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the poorest person I knew. He was actually quite smart about money so long as it wasn't about getting it for himself. Mm. Gary Schneider is the interesting example because Gary was a a very talented guy drifting around Soho and not getting much done at all, although he connects to people. I mean, he, he might appear in somebody's performance piece, uh, something like that. And Peter was very, very um, uh, judgmental about that. He could sound like your uncle in New Jersey. Get a job. You're wasting your life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. He would do that. Uh, You know, 
Peter, the arch bohemian, get a job. He said, you don't have any skills. You don't have any real skills. You should learn how to print photographs. You're going to come here a certain number of times a week from now on, and I will teach you how to print photographs. And Gary said, yes, master, I'll, I'll do that. You got it. And he did. And he is now, in my humble opinion, the best printer of photographer, photography in this country. But Peter did it. He, is, he shaped him. The same thing for Schneider and Erdman. Uh, once he'd done that, and Peter decided that Gary was a brilliant printer, which he is, he said to Gar- John and Gary, who were, still, were a, a couple at that time, you should found a studio. You could make a lot of money. Peter, who had $27 to his name, he did keep it together, just barely, but he did, hmm. which I think is fascinating. I used to worry about him because I think the world is changing. Pretty soon, the Lower East Side, whatever else is going to be, is gonna, not going to be any longer a no-cost place to live where you can get passable slum apartments for practically nothing. Mm-hmm. That's going. And when it's gone, how the hell will Peter make it? I, I did not know. Mm. And uh, the other thing is Peter's manner was such that um, he was often called aristocratic. Mm. And it's true. You can squint and you can sort of see him playing polo with the Duke of Edinburgh. He had a kind of self-possession or quality about him that was impressive. So you never thought, oh, poor Peter Hugar, the impoverished Peter Hugar. No. You thought, here's somebody. I mean, this is really interesting and important. And you did. Mm. I, I never, I realized that he was poor, but I, I didn't think, that that was a defining characteristic of him at all. At one point, there was a woman I knew named Alice Rose George, who's an interesting figure in the world of photography. She was the photo editor of Fortune magazine. She was in my place, and she looked, picked up Portraits in Life and Death and said, hey, what's this? And was astonished, blown away. And so I said, this is Peter Hujar. And, you know, he doesn't have a penny. He, because he's very bad at handling his work and so forth. And she, so she made it a point every once in a while to assign him for $300 a pop to go and take a business of some CEO on Wall Street. A picture, a color picture that they could run in Fortune magazine. Mm -hmm simply because she knew it would be a good picture and because she was doing a good deed at the same time. In 1986, the year before Peter became sick, David suddenly twigged on the fact that Peter didn't have a dealer. He was having all these shows and all these dealers were coming around and he was making money, yada, 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 and Peter was always in exactly the same spot. And he said, that's ridiculous. Leave it to me. And he went to Gracie Mansion. And he came back 
to Peter and said, you have now got a show working for you. It was, it, it was done in about five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worked on that show very hard, produced many beautiful prints for it, and, it was, and hung it all, and it was a very impressive, very impressive show. Okay. The night of its opening, I was out to dinner. I said, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave early. Why? Well, I have a very good friend who's having an opening tonight, and I just can't stand the idea of him standing there in that gallery and maybe two or three people coming by and feeling so isolated and insulted. I've got to be there for him. So... I got in a taxi, and I arrived. The taxi could not pull up outside of Gracie's gallery. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the crowd inside had overflowed into the sidewalk and the sidewalk into the street. It was like the subway in the most old-fashioned of all rush hours. I was dumbfounded. I didn't realize where these people came from. <laughs> I didn't because I was at that point insensitive to the generation that came after ours. They were all, none of them were Peter's friends except me. I mean, of course they were. There were certain friends who were there. The odd thing is, given that throng, all those people, Gracie sold three pictures. Hmm. And the three pictures were all to the same woman, hmm. the woman who I'd, I'd come with which she promptly took off to Paris and started promoting. Um, and, but nobody in that audience was going to buy the pictures. I, Why? I, when you're in your 30s or 20s and are living on probably very little money, the last thing you think is, I'm going to set aside for three, four hundred dollars, because that was no, that was what the prices were. They're mm. nothing more than that, right? Uh, and buy a photograph. You could say, "I love it. I think it's great art. I'm all for it," but you don't. You believe that the way you see art is by going to galleries and looking at books, right? And you do not believe that it is possible for you to go in with your Maybe even if you had some money and say, okay, now I want to look at these pictures and I'm going to choose one and this is it. Yeah. That, that is something that it's hard to convince a young person who's living on a very strict budget that that is something that's sensible to do. Mm. And that was his audience. His audience And were, his audience was composed of people who didn't buy art. Mm. Right. And I must say, I think it probably is still. You think that he thought about his audience, who he was making pictures for? I can't say, certainly. Um, you know, one of his big mentors, most important mentors, uh, was Richard Avedon. And there you have a photographer who thought a whole lot about his audience. Peter greatly admired him, not so much in the so-called fine artwork, but in the, the commercial work. He thought he was a great commercial photographer and a good friend. So did he think about his audience? 
No, I don't think he understood that he could have an audience. Mm. I'm Jordan Weissman, and you're listening to my conversation with Stephen Koch. One thing that I was curious to talk to Stephen about was the extremely important relationship between Peter Hujar and David Wojnarowicz. Peter Hujar and David Wojnarowicz had in common that they lived on coffee and cigarettes. Really? Coffee all day? Coffee all day. Huh. As much as they could get. <laughs> <laughs> How much coffee and how many cigarettes just out of curiosity? I don't know. I mean, Peter smoked until he was so sick he was physically unable to lift the cigarette. <laughs> On a daily basis? Oh, you mean until the end of his life? Until the end of his life. Yeah. I, I suppose it must have been a couple packs a day. Really? Constantly smoking. Constantly smoking. Huh. And David was even more. David really smoked. Huh. He was a little... A little engine there, yeah. choo-choo train, hmm. puff, 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 <laughs> and and so that the portrait by Peter did of David lighting up mm-hmm. is interesting because it's so typical. I mean, I've done a lot of thinking about that relationship because I think it's very unusual, if not unique, in art history. And you've said before that Peter had a way of knowing what having an intuitive feeling about what someone should do he had a very strong mentoring streak peter made david at least as a visual artist possible david believed that it was peter's guidance help love concern insight that made it possible for him to really produce art up to then David had been, first of all, a very talented, but completely undisciplined writer, but very, very talented. And Peter made David focus on and concentrate on his talents. Peter made it possible for David to grow up. And, and David made it possible for Peter to view his life as worth living. Um, he he loved having a substitute son. Hmm. thought it was just wonderful. And he adored David. Adored him. A fascinating fact, both of these guys were had a, a, a psychological problem that verged on a psychiatric problem, which is that they had extreme and uncontrollable tempers. Hmm. Both of them. Both of them. Mm-hmm. Peter could go into rages that are legendary, screaming rages, furniture smashing. And David used to love driving across the country in one of these jalopies that he owned yeah. with a bunch of his buddies. In the first 500 miles, things might go well. The next 500 miles, a little less well. Before these trips ended, everybody in the car place had walked out. Hmm. And David had been absolutely impossible with them all. 
And they'd think, well, this is the end of the friendship. Yeah. They'd, they'd get out in, you know, Peoria or someplace and take the bus back to New York. Right. He was a character. He was a character. He was, but he was a rageaholic. Yeah. Everybody who was close to him, except Peter, here were two rageaholics who never got angry with each other. Mm. It went perfectly. I keep on looking at these pictures on your wall. You have a, a portrait of Paul Tech and a self-portrait of Peter. How come these two in particular? When I was a very young guy, and first sort of coming out, I thought they were the glamour couple. Now, that was a very naive way of looking at it. But they were Peter and Paul, and they were fixed in my mind as a unit. I wanted them to stay together. I was very disappointed when they broke up. I didn't like it. Mm. And I think that's sort of what I did. I mean, this is neither of these pictures were made while they were an item. They're my dream couple. Right. At a certain point, there was a woman who I really didn't like, like much. I thought she was phony baloney from the top to bottom. I couldn't stand her. She called me up saying that she'd been invited to a wonderful party. But she felt, would only feel comfortable going there with an escort. I like that, escort. <laughs> and would I mind being her escort to this party? And like a sap, I said, oh, sure, why not? That would be fine. So we chatted for a little longer. Then she hung up. But right before she hung up, did I say it's black tie? <laughs> so I ranted and raved. I called up Peter, raging about it. I was so upset. And he said, would you like to wear my Armani jacket? Because uh -huh. we were the same size physically. We could wear each other's clothes. Uh -huh. um, he's a little taller than I am. So I went over, and he brought out this jacket, which later went on to fame in another form. Uh, and I tried it on. It fit perfectly and was by far the most remarkable garment that's ever been on this body. It was fabulous. Hmm. It was obviously very high-end, Armani. It was Perfect in every way. And Peter used to buy his clothes at Cheap Jacks. So I said, Peter, where did you get this? And he said, no, no special intonation. Oh, Giorgio gave it to me. <laughs> I'm trying to think of where I can locate the Armani jacket. Yeah, well, what was the second life that it had that you mentioned? The second life it had is that David got it. Peter died. Oh. David started wearing it all the time. Hmm. And a lot of those big photographs from him done by Nan in the end of his life. Oh, I see. He's in the Armani jacket. Uh-huh. The one with the red background? I think there's Yeah, and it, there's fascinating pictures because the photographs that Peter made of David in which he saw David's beauty and made him into this young God, which was remarkable. 
because David was not a particularly good-looking person. Right. If they would walk in, you would think, oh, my God, here's a good-looking. No. And then all the other pictures of him show the way he is somebody who's going to have a lot of trouble growing up. Hmm. Uh, He's always a little young in a kind of unhappy way. And the pictures of Nan at the end show this self-assured, centered, rather powerful grown man. Hmm. It's very striking to me. I think um, I'm, I'm not always a super fan of, of Nan's work, but I think that that's an extremely sensitive reading of David hmm. that she did in those last pictures. Very, very much so. Hmm. Let me ask you one more thing. You were Susan Sontag's protege. You were close with her. What was that? What was your relationship like? What was um, what was she like with you? What did it mean to be a protege? She was first of all. She was very generous. I said to her, I was in a taxi with her very early in the relationship, and she said to me, "You know, you're very gifted." And she said, "I don't know anybody." as young as you are, that's producing work as good as yours. And I was flattered. And she said, you're going to really do very well. I just have one piece of advice for you. Mm -hmm. Don't take any shit from anybody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 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 And that was Susan. She didn't take any shit from anybody. She was a tough cookie. She was a very tough cookie. Yeah. She was very charismatic. She had what I call a talent for being famous. She was very, very good at being famous Mm. and understood its ins and outs perfectly. But she, Susan was a person who had a lot of trouble being alone. We were once sitting in a Chinese restaurant up, up near Columbia, and it was jammed with people. And she said, rather than live alone, really live alone, I could live with anyone in this room chosen at random. She couldn't write alone. So that I spent many, many hours sitting beside her at the typewriter. Really? Yeah. She would go on binges, which I only vaguely knew then and now I know very well, were very much sustained by speed. Mm -hmm. And she would then go on to binges that would last for maybe a month or three weeks in which she would always be isolated and always alone. Hmm. She was writing a novel that I had mixed feelings about and still do, called Death Kit. And in it, she has a scene in which a guy is in a tunnel, but naked and walking through the tunnel. And she describes his balls brushing against his thighs. And I said, Susan, we have finally found something I know more about than you do. (laughs) Took a while, but we we have it. That is just not how it works. It it isn't the way it feels. Uh She was furious. And I stopped. I was fired. I was no longer in on that project. Really? Oh, piss off as hell. And needless to say, it went into the book. (laughs) Her description. Her description. 
That was my conversation with Stephen Koch that we recorded in New York. If you're curious to learn more about him and his relationship with Hujar in the Archive, there's a fantastic article which Koch wrote in Harper's called The Pictures. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Ellen Payne-Smith. Extra special thanks to Francis Schichtel, who works at the Peter Hujar Archive, for both setting this interview up and for making the portrait which accompanied it. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. If you have a sec, give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show and we really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.